Would anybody like to include anybody in the prayers? Definitely Jesse. Jesse. <clears throat> Who? Jesse. <clears throat> this is your son? No, this is, this is my son's friend. Who's, who's, uh, who's married he's, to his son's wife's sister. sister. Right. But so he, he's uh, family. He was just up at Cleveland Clinic today to get, I guess, to be advised that he had cancer. So oh. he went so well. This is just newly revealed to him. Yeah. Yeah, he's, but he's had it for, you know, for weeks now because, because of, uh, you know, they did, just, just didn't do half the things that they should have done, so. so uh, In yeah. Georgia, but now he's. How old is he? He's, he's 58. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's a young, young man yet, really. Anybody else? Anybody else? I'm glad you're doing better. Thank you. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us in the Mass, always, and the life that we carry of you within us that makes us a part of your kingdom and your work. Strengthen us um, in our efforts to open ourselves to you, to move with you, so that everything we do becomes one with you, that we grow into you, bring you to all that we do. Help us to do that so others know you, um, particularly where it's hard, um, where people don't want to know you. Give us the courage to bring you everywhere. Um, we ask for a blessing on Irene and Joe. Watch over Irene, help her to heal. Um, help the doctors to be keen in their minds and their diagnoses, sure in their hands. Help Joe um, to have a quiet heart, um, knowing that he can't do much about it. For Jesse, um, help him to have a quiet heart um, with the doctors as well, help clear their minds. There's so much we expect of doctors today, sometimes too much. Um, we're in a fallen condition. Um, help us all to trust you, particularly where our lives seem at risk. Um, be with him, let him have a sure heart, quiet heart. Um, help him to trust in you, whatever happens. Um, stay with him, um, heal him if it is your will. Um, I ask for a special blessing, particularly on our political year leaders after this long um, battle. Um, I ask for a special blessing on um, Obama and the Democrats as they leave office. Um, help them to give themselves to the work ahead of us, and particularly to Trump. Um, strengthen him in a spirit of humility. Um, help him to learn, to give himself to serving, to put himself away, and to genuinely, genuinely put himself away, um, to listen to our country, his advisors, um, to, to look out for our common good, the things that we believe in. Um, we ask, also ask that um, we take the things that we learn here, particularly the difficult things, and make them living in our lives so that what we do here is an extension of our reading of Scripture. 
us to find a strength in our reading to do those things that often aren't easy. We ask all of this um, in your name, our Lord. Amen. Um, I want to read the poem. No, no, let's see. No, a couple business things. Let me take care of these before we start, and then I'll read. Um, if you all got, the, if you didn't get the email, I, we got Suzanne sent out an email um, in which I asked all of you to think about what you want to do for Thanksgiving week because it, I know it's a busy week for everybody. Um, some of the people on Friday said that they may be gone the whole week. Um, I'm a little bit reluctant to go up the whole week unless a lot of people can't make it because I'd like to try to finish Hamlet before the holidays. So my, my, my intention, if we can do it, is to start Hamlet next week. So what I'd like to do is, is plan to finish up Othello next week, bring it to a conclusion, the, whatever final thoughts I'll have on it with you, start Hamlet, and then give Hamlet, I think it's the first three weeks of November, that takes us to the week before Thanksgiving week, I think. Huh? I mean, before Christmas, sorry. The week before, sorry, Christmas, yes. Next week. Next week is Thanksgiving. Is it next week? Yeah. So are you back in the retreat? See? See? The Advent mission? The Advent mission? The Advent mission? Because that's. Uh, Mon- not this Monday, but the next one, right? Is that on Monday? Sunday through Thursday. So, so how many of you are going to be involved in that? Is everybody? Okay, so should we just cancel next week altogether and pick it up the week after? You tell me. Well, the Advent thing is the week after. Is the week after? Yeah. After, or I mean Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh-huh. I just wanted to make sure we're counting your three weeks if you were. Oh counting. right. Yeah. I mean, you could have. Oh, you mean the Monday mission? class? Yeah. Yeah. Next week. Skip Friday and Monday, and then have the Friday class and be caught up with everybody. I can't even work. Say that again, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> tell us what to do. Monday and Friday in two different weeks. Just tell what? us. Monday and Friday in two different weeks. So Monday in the first week and then Friday in the second week. You have Monday next week, Monday night mm-hmm. next week, and then skip Friday because it's the Friday after Thanksgiving. Yeah. And then skip the next Monday because of this advent. Yeah. And then, you know, the next Friday days, then we'll be together again. Yeah, except I, um, what I, let's see, is there, well, it won't be, it won't be, I have to do, let's do this. Next week, I'm not, next week, will anybody have any problem in this group meeting Monday night? No. Okay, I'd like to go ahead. I'm going to ask the Friday group if that Friday group can't meet Monday Monday morning, um, so that we stay on weeks and in sequence, and then move it off and see what happens. If we have to cancel that next week, then I'm, I'm glad to do that because it gives us a week off and we'll just see what happens. But at this point, let's do this tentatively. Let's plan to meet next Monday, finish Othello, and start Hamlet. 
Um, and we may have to rush through Hamlet if we lose a week in December. And I may just do that. To, and, but let's see what happens. And I'll check with you again next week, um, and I'll let you know what happens when we meet on Friday with the group decides. If we need to make a change, we will. But at this point, let's go ahead. Just keep on the schedule, and um, we'll plan to meet next Monday. Finish Othello, start Hamlet, okay? Um, any volunteers for food next week? Who, somebody who hasn't brought something, if Bob it's possible. Bob says I can volunteer. <laughs> he gave you permission. <laughs> Well, she, what more she, do you need? She was going to say it differently, but <laughs> Are you? okay, we'll bring stuff. Okay, okay, yes. okay. You can't bring anything unless you bring some Malbec with it. Next week, Marcy's going to bring something, and Bob's bringing Malbec wine. This, this should be a good class. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Somebody may have to carry us out, but okay, okay, that does it. Let's let's take a look at um, the medieval lyrics. Can you all pull out the medieval lyrics? This will be the last week we have on medieval lyrics, and then next next time we will start with something new. You all, you all have a copy? Does everybody have a copy? Can we start at six thirty or six forty-five? Six thirty. We're supposed to start at 6.30. We're supposed to start at 6.30, but some people are always late. Well, I could have been here early because I was work. I know that. I know that. I, I'm always... No. I'm always... I try to start at 6.30, but, but we're always late. And I always know that, that you have a long way to come. And I, but I didn't today because I got early. Oh. I always, look forward, I always look forward to your walking in when you walk in, <laughs> whenever you do. Do you all have the medieval lyrics? Mm -hmm. Okay. Remember, last time we read, I think, did I read from Canterbury Tales? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The one you want to go family. Uh oh, supernatural love. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to read a little bit of. Canterbury Tales, again, just because I love it, and I want you to hear it, because we're going to do Chaucer, and it's not a, it's not a, Canterbury Tales is a narrative, so it has a, a rolling cumulative rhythm. Lyrics tend not to, because lyrics are so short, but I want you to hear it just to get the flavor of it again. So just a few lines from Canterbury Tales, and then go back a page to Gentle Lessa. Um, it's a, it's a lyric written by Chaucer. So, Canterbury Tales. Oops. Canterbury Tales, the prologue. When the April with the shores soot, the drach of match has pierced to the root, and bathed every vein in switch the cure of which virtue engendered is the floor. When Zafris eke with his sweet breath, Inspire heart in every hope and faith, the thunder croppers and the young sona hath in the ram his havocours irana. In small fowl is making melodia that sleep in all the neck with open ye. So pricketh him nature in her courages, then longing folk to goon on pilgrimages. And palmeres for to seek in strange strandes, 
to fairer, hallowed, scutha in sundry landes. And specially from every shearer's ende of Inga Londa to Canterbury they wenda, the holy blissful master for to seeka, let him have hope one that they were seeka. People outside must think we're nuts. <laughs> what are these people doing in this church setting? Speaking a foreign language. Remember, that's closer to Shakespeare's language than what we hear today when we read it ourselves. Chaucer's Gentilessa. <clears throat> it's, it's a beautiful poem. It's Chaucer's rendering of what the medieval Christian took to be a gentleman. And by gentleman, clearly he didn't mean somebody who was born into the aristocracy. And it, wasn't, it wasn't a class distinction based on wealth or prestige or education. He was based on something inherent from Christ after the fall. Okay. So the first stock, Adam, and all that happened after the fall, this is his description of gentilessa, that, that virtue of gentleness. By the way, remember, it's one of Paul's um, um, qualities um, that show the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Remember, all patience, gentleness, wisdom. It's one, of the, it's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this quality of gentleness. The first took father of gentilessa, what man that claimeth gentle for to be, must follow his tracer and all his widows to dresser. Virtue to sue and vices for to flee, for unto virtue longeth dignité. And noch the reverse, softly dare he deme, all were he meter, crone or diadem. If he had a crown and mitre and diadem, it wouldn't make him a gentleman. This first stoke was full of righteousness, true of his word, sobre, piteous, and fray, cleaner of his ghost, and loved busynessa, keeping busy in the spirit. Against the visa of Slutha in honestere, and but his heir love virtu as did he, he is noch gentila, though his riches sema, all were he mitra, crona, or diadem. It doesn't matter if he had a mitre crown or unless he could never be gentle unless he loved virtue and wanted to practice gentleness. Visa may well be heir to old richessa, but there may no man, as men may well see, bequeathes his heir, his virtuous noblesse, that is appropriate unto no degree, but to the fairest father in majestea, that maketh him his heir, that can him quema, or were he mitra crun or diademe. quality of gentleness. These are some of the things that Shakespeare inherited from the Middle Ages. Okay, um, before, I just want to do a very, very quick review of Merchant of Venice. Before we do, I want to just um, um, make a note for all of you to look ahead. I've been meaning to do this for weeks, but it, it just was important to get going. Next week, um, I want to finish Othello and start Hamlet. Before we get into either of those next week, I'm going to do two things that I've been wanting to do for some time now. I want to talk a little bit about genre. We're looking at Venice because our work is primarily catechetical. 
and I've been claiming since the beginning of our work together with the Iliad and the Odyssey, and especially since we got in Shakespeare because he's a modern, that the regime a person lives in, Troy, um, Troy, remember the Iliad, Ithaca, Troy again in the Aeneid, except Aeneas leaves Troy and goes on to Rome. We saw the hardships. Remember, those of you who were with me said, heard me say, um, the Iliad or the Odyssey, the, the Aeneid is not for faint hearts because um, for Aeneas and his men to have done what they did, they had to give up everything. So every 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 book that we've read has focused on a regime. It defines a people. It gives them their identity, and that's not less true here. Um, so next week we're going to shift from Venice to Denmark, but in the, in the work that we've done here on Merchant of Venice and Othello, we've been looking at Venice actually from two perspectives, even if, even if you all weren't aware of it. Um, Merchant of Venice is a comedy, Othello is a tragedy. So one of the things that we're going to have to look at before we leave Venice, and we're going to leave it next week, is what's the difference between the two? It's still the same regime, yeah, as Shakespeare understands it. But in one instance, he's looking at justice as the outcome of what this remarkable woman does, what Portia does. And in the other, he's looking at justice and the cost of it in the form of a cleansing, because almost everybody gets wiped out at the end of Othello. So what's he doing? What's he saying about what do we learn from looking at Venice from, those, from the point of view of those two genres, a comedy and a tragedy, okay? A woman very central in one of them, in a comic action, and a man in the other. What, what's Shakespeare showing us about Venice and these two sides of it? So I want to look at genres. We've not talked about comedy and tragedy before. Next week at the beginning of our work, we're going to take some time and I want to talk about what a comedy and what a tragedy is. I know you probably take that all for granted, but I think you're going to hear things next week that you probably never heard before, so I hope it's good. I also want to look at the metrics, that there is a meter that Shakespeare's writing, like Chaucer, he's writing in a musical line, and I'd like to put that out just so you see something I don't think we always recognize when we read it, that, that there's this strong musical element that's a part of what he does. So next week we'll do that. Okay, so, quick review. Um, quick review. When we read Merchant together, we saw a city that in terms of the action, we can describe as a usurious city. It's a city in which people are engaged in um, risking, um, in entrepreneurial acts. It's a way of trying to better their lives by their willingness to take risks to improve their lives. So it put a tremendous responsibility on the individual, and it's unlike anything we saw in the ancient world, not in ancient Greece, not in Rome, not in the feudal world of Europe. This is an entirely new thing. It's our world. It's the world we live in. Shakespeare's presentation of that world is pretty dark. There's, there's very little in Venice that isn't um, um, threatening to lives. At the very center of the action is, is this question of whether um, Antonio will survive this lawsuit. So, 
Um, usury doesn't just mean charging excessive interest. I think that's the way we usually think of it. Usury actually means um, calling in a loan when it's unpayable. I mean, that's what excessive means. You can't meet it, right? And in this interest, we see in human terms what exactly that means. It means Antonio's going to die if the loans, if he can't pay it. If Shylock gets his bond, Antonio's dead. And if he's dead, the merchant enterprise goes down. So that's what we've seen. That's one aspect of the commercial regime. We saw at the heart of it were two different ways of reading. And we've seen from the very beginning of our work together, it's something I've been hitting you over the head with, how badly we read as people. We, we saw how much it was, every book, the Iliad, starting with the Iliad, typically people don't read well. They read what, they see what they want to see. That's what we've seen again and again. They don't pay attention to what's there. All, every, every author that we've read shows us that. We read for ourselves. We read to get back ourselves. And very often there's more going on than people see. And one of the values of poetry, as I've suggested, is that in the poem, I, I, I'm assuming you've all experienced this, in the poem, when, the first time you go through a poem, you can never understand it well, certain lines, because you don't see how those lines contain in them the whole work. Once you finish the work and go back, suddenly lines jump out at you all the time. And then, then you hear a meaning that you didn't hear the first time around. Yeah? I, I think, I remember it was true for me when I was a student um, in my classes. I'm assuming that when I read the um, opening of Merchant of Venice when Antonio says, I think I'm sad, you know. My guess is that for most of you, you didn't give that a thought. And that when you read Antonio or uh, Solerio and Solano's responses, you didn't see a lot in them. I don't know, maybe you did. I mean, maybe you're much better readers than I was, but, but when you read over them and look at them closely, you suddenly see they're full of meaning. Because we so, we, we so get used to hearing words and thinking we understand them without seeing that there are always deeper meanings to them than we realize. And the poets are the ones who bring that out. That's one of the things that the poets do for us. Um, so we saw two different ways of reading the world. One was an Old Testament and one was a New Testament. Um, and we saw that the conflict um, was two understandings of law and justice. According to Shylock, the law was um, legalistic. He gave an Old Testament reading to things. The Christians tended to read it in a different way. When, when, in, when Shylock gives the example of Laban's um, um, agreement with Jacob and what Jacob did, Shylock saw that as an encouragement to, to prosper, to be resourceful. Antonio saw it as an example of God's providence working in the world. Um, we saw that the, that the law, as Shylock looked at it, is deadly. That the ultimate effect of an Old Testament law in, in terms of the story is death. Um, and Shylock exemplifies that. And what we learn from him is that the danger of the law is that, I believe this is true for all of us, the danger of the law is that we can bring this legalistic sense of pride um, that, that um, we read it in, the, in, the, in a spirit of self-interest. We bring a pride and a self-righteousness to us because if it ever gets pushed to final things, we would rather somebody else die than that we die. 
or, or that somebody else would lose something before we lose something. So what we see masked under the law is this self-righteous legal, this self-righteous pride, and something in, in something of a selfishness. And Shylock exemplifies it. When his daughter runs off, he wants to see her dead. And he's very clear about that. He wants to see her dead. He's so vengeful. The idea that he would lose anything that she took the money and the Christians on the other side we saw are too cavalier, far, far too light. They take things for granted. It's as if their belief in Christ encourages them to take things for granted, to not take them seriously enough. So the Christians tend to, um, to be too cavalier. In the courtroom scene, what we see is interesting too because not only are the men cavalier, remember they too easily commit their wives, they say, my wife is here, she, you know, I, I, yeah. and they gladly sacrifice their wives. And the, both of the wives say, if your wives are around, they wouldn't be glad to hear this. Um, that same cavalier spirit in taking somebody for granted. Um, and we also see in Graziano the tendency of the Christian to be like Shylock. He gets at least as self-righteous about that law. Remember when she reverses the tables on him? He, he can't wait to see Shylock get hurt. So Shakespeare's really clear that, he, that um, and, and, and I, I think we talked about this, I, I think I mentioned it. If you look at what goes on in the courtroom in terms of hypocrisies, it seems to me, I don't find any hypocrisies in Shylock. He's dead on. I mean, you know where he follows the law, he wants blood, he has no qualms about saying that. Graziano's a Christian. When he, when he really wants blood at the end, in some ways he's going against his own Christian beliefs. So there's a hypocrisy there that I think we're meant to see. Um, we talked about the rings, and I want to just I want to look at this passage because we we've never gotten to it, um, but it's gonna it's gonna come in in our readings today. Take a look at Act Five, Scene One. This is Merchant. Um, remember, just after Portia and Nerissa get home, um, the the couples Nerissa and, and um, Graziano begin to quarrel a little bit. There's something going on. And Portia asks what's wrong, and then um, Graziano says that he and Bassanio gave up the rings to the two clerks, and that Nerissa's upset about it. This is about line 165 or so. Portia says, you were to blame. I must be plain with you to part so slightly with your wife's first gift, a thing a thing stuck on with oaths upon your finger and so riveted with faith unto your flesh. I gave my love a ring. Now you can, you know that Bassiano right at this moment is squirming because he's going to have to admit to Portia in a minute he did the same thing. She knows that too. She, I mean the women are aware of what's going on here. But that line, and so riveted with faith unto your flesh. Now remember, the men gave up the rings to Cavalierly. One of Bassanio's last words to Portia before they left to return to Venice was he would never part with that ring. It was a sacred thing and he gave it up. Shylock is upset with Jessica because she took the ring that belonged to the two of them, him, Shylock, and, and his wife, and sold it for a monkey. So in terms of traditional value, Shylock is much closer to holding on to those things than the Christians. And right now, I think Shakespeare's showing us why. Because the ring is not just a symbol of fidelity and a commitment 
It seems to me for a Christian, I don't know how to, it's a symbol into the cross. It's like that little girl pricking herself. So riveted with faith unto your flesh. Because one of the things that distinguish, distinguishes a Christian, certainly from somebody Jewish, is our commitment to a cross. That, we, that, our, that our commitment is to pick up a cross, not when it's comfortable for us, which is not picking up a cross. It means picking it up when it's not easy. So the, the rings become a really important symbol in the play here, and they define fundamental differences between Shylock as a Jew and the, the Christian men. Um, we talked about Portia as a new kind of heroine um, and an image of Christ. A, a couple of things, just quickly to, um, to, to think about before we put this all away. Um, remember some of the things that distinguish the Christians from the Jews. We went over this last week, so I'm not going to do it. All these lines that I quoted, remember, Shylock makes it clear that he knows that Antonio will be good for his money. And he describes him in terms of risking, and he makes clear that the one thing that, one of the things that distinguishes him from Antonio is he doesn't want to risk, or he wants to minimize his risks. He wants, he wants to minimize it as much as he can, so he takes advantage of people's neediness. And he hates Antonio all the more because he loses money because Antonio gives money freely. Um, Jessica wants to leave Shylock. Um, he wants to lock her up. He makes money breed. Um, um, he's furious at her when she leaves. He curses her. Um, wants her dead at his feet. The Christians are glib and too cavalier. Um, Bassanio's, Bassanio's uh, um, remarkable in some sense. Remember when he goes into the ordeal, he commits himself completely. He declares his love for Portia. He gives himself completely. Remember that the nature of the ordeal is, who chooses me must give and hazard all he has. So his choice is an expression to give up everything for her. And we saw the difference between Morocco and Aragon because they want her for themselves, for pride, for show, for merit. And we talked about what would happen if we reversed that for the women, for the, um, and, and Porsche, particularly Portia. Um, when, the, when the ordeal is over, Portia commits everything she has to him, calls him um, her lord. She gives him property. Um, she gives up all possessions to him. And even before the ordeal, remember, she identified herself with the sacrifice in the, in the Trojan episode. Um, so in every way, we, from her obedience to her father, to what she does with her husband, she shows herself willing to give herself up. Seems to me one of the clearest expressions of that is, the, the, I think one of the most complete acts on Portia's part of self-effacement self-effacement to put herself away, is putting on the role of a man and going into Venice. She doesn't go in for money. She doesn't go in for a career. It's not prestige. It's not success. She goes in to do a good for her husband in disguise. So we don't see those motives. It, it's an extension of what we've been seeing in her, her all along. 
So, and, and it's interesting to me, she's not home praying for Bassanio. And she's not home doing something else. When she finds out he's in trouble, she risks herself again. Um, and in a way that's self-effacing, that disguises herself. So over and over and over again, and, and even at the end when the two women chastise their husband, there's this wonderful sense of charity, even when they're, no, not even, most especially when they're, when they're bringing about justice. Now, Portia is very severe in the courtroom. I mean, she puts Shylock under a gun at some point. She moderates herself with her husband, but both women make their husbands know that what they did was wrong. Remember, they said they're not going to sleep with them until they, you know, because they're presuming, they're, they're play, pretending as if the men slept with women, and that's why they got, I mean, they're really raking them both over the coals, but there's this wonderful graciousness in the justice that they're trying to bring about with their husbands. Um, so what we see in Portia, remember, when she arrives, when she and Nurse arrive at, um, at Belmont, the line that's spoken just as they enter is, hark the music, and she enters. If you watch Shakespeare's plays, stage directions mean a lot. Usually somebody comes, timing very often when somebody comes, actions speak. There's no better way to put it in Shakespeare. He does everything on a stage. When she comes in, um, Lorenzo says, hark the music. And he and, and um, Jessica have been speaking about the music of the spheres. So I think we're meant to see that she's an, she is an image of poetry. Christ, if Christ was anything, Christ was poetry. He brought the harmony of the Trinity into this world. There's nothing that he did, absolutely nothing. When he threw the money changers in fury, in anger, out of the temple, that was poetry. There was nothing that he did that wasn't in harmony with the eternal order of the Father and Spirit. So in the deepest sense, I mean this. I really mean this. He is, he is poetry itself. Portia's an image of that in a woman. That everything she does brings justice in the way that we understood it here. Now remember, justice for Shylock as a Jew is Old Testament. According to the Christian understanding, that justice can only lead to death. In, in Dante's hell, they got justice. Nobody, nobody can escape hell who wants just justice. Purgatory was different from justice because people there wanted mercy. Everybody there was trying to atone for their sins and they knew they needed help. Is that clear? Remember, what Christ didn't come here because we deserve it. He offered his love when we most didn't deserve it. So the love that he calls us to, and I think that's exemplified in Portia, the love that he calls us to isn't love given just because we think we deserve it. Because if we wait until we think we deserve love, or, or if, if a husband waits until his wife deserves love, when will he ever love her? If a wife waits until her husband deserves her love, when will she ever love him? We're asked to love. But the, but the interesting thing is we're asked also to achieve justice. And remember, the great struggle in the, in the Middle Ages, the great accomplishment, was to bring justice and love together, justice and mercy. Not one or the other. We talked about that forever when we went through Dante. That's what Portia's doing. 
So Shakespeare's picking up that Christian tradition. He's bringing mercy, love, and justice together. Portia achieves that reconciliation in everything she does in the courtroom and, and what the two women do with their husbands. I wish there were more men in here. There's glass. So that's where we were. And one of the most important things to see here because it's going to be in stark contrast to Othello. The comedy ends by averting a tragic outcome, the death of Antonio. Every comedy sets itself in the direction of a tragedy. Something's going to be lost. Every good comedy moves in the direction of a tragedy. Everyone. But something, something you, you never expected comes into that world and helps turn it to bring about a good. Porsche's the instrument for doing that. She brings a justice to the world through her love. And we don't see that anything in Venice can produce that itself. We've already seen that. Somebody has to come from outside that world because in that world, the justice that's achieved is never really complete. It doesn't save the life of the city in, in the terms in which Shakespeare shows. us. Is that clear? Are we all, is everybody clear how hard, how truly, and how hard it is what he's showing us? If we, if we take that away, we take something away from Portia. The, the extraordinary feat that she accomplishes as a woman, I think. We, we lose something of the joy at the end that we're supposed to feel by, by this wonder that's taken place and how important she was in helping to bring it about. Okay, so every comedy ends with a joy. Some great pain is moved through and we move towards some joy. Every tragedy will reverse that. And I think lots of people misread tragedy. I'll try to make that clear next week. But. Okay, can I go on? Okay, any questions? Because this is it on Merchant of Venice. Any questions about Merchant or, or Shakespeare's understanding of politics and, and how, how intimately it's related to poetry? But for him, you couldn't, you couldn't separate them. Because poetry is the one, poetry is the way of knowing that gives us the most complete picture of our human condition the things that we can do and not do to, to bring about a good, a good condition. And I, I made this statement, um, you weren't here, Marcy, but I made this statement last year. I think one of the reasons we're in such trouble that we're in politically, because our leaders don't read enough poetry. I know you probably think that's silly, but I believe if they did, if they read poetry better, because I don't think lots of people teach poetry the way they should, but if we had our poetry tradition behind us, in terms of language, what we do with language, what we see with language, how well we can use language, what we use it for, all those things, we would be in better shape today. I'm not just tooting my horn, you guys. I hope, I hope you know that. I say that because I believe it's true. Okay, where do we find Christ? In Merchant of Venice, it seems to me we see it in Antonio. When he, when he so completely willingly offers up his life in the courtroom, he's ready to offer his life for the sake of a justice that in some ways is cruel. Um, and Portia is the one who, like Christ, brings justice out of the love that she brings. And my argument is that I, don't, I think anybody lacking that kind of love could never have achieved what she did. <laughs>
we take that away, we diminish what she does. So, um, now, we're in the same world, in Othello. This is Venice. This is Venice. Um, I just quickly reviewed this, even though, even though I, let me go at it a different way here. Remember, the reason I want to do this is because capitalism means, means, remember, head, the use of our heads. That the whole capitalistic enterprise rests on how resourceful we are intellectually. The danger of it that I don't think people saw in the beginning is, is that it can produce a class of intellectuals that think they have all the answers to things, that they can tell other people how to live their lives. And you know, it's a, it's a great danger in our regime. Remember what we saw um, in the Divine Comedy. That the one thing that characterized the people in hell, do you remember what it was? When they entered hell over the gates, when Virgil and Dante entered the hell, it said, give up hope, all of you who entered it. This is the place that lost the good of the intellect. But the one thing that defined hell was the loss of the intellect because that was the greatest gift God gave us. And remember, we can't talk about the intellect as something separate from our free wills. They, they, they are absolutely interconnected. You can't separate them. We have an intellect um, because it gives us choices. Otherwise, why would we have it? And we have choices. Um, our choices imply an intellect because it means we can deliberate about the things that we do. We can never separate them, the two of them. The people in hell lost the good of their intellects, and we saw it. They are in a condition of arrest. Their wills are stuck. And remember the condition of heaven. In heaven, it's this infinite wanting of more. Be, be, remember we saw that image of, of Beatrice when she looked at the griffin? So, said, my, my desires were satisfied and set on hungering for more. That Every desire was fulfilled looking at Christ, but because he was infinite, you, the love could only go on infinitely. Now think about how that different that is from most people's understanding of heaven, because most people think of heaven as a static condition. It's anything but static. So to lose the good of the intellect means your will stops. You're in a state of arrest. Everything about the purgatorio and purgatorio and paradiso was forward moving. People were in motion again. They weren't stuck. What are the definitions? Hell, people are stuck in a rut. They don't move. They're not growing. They're not changing. Purgatory, they're changing. The paradiso, they're always growing in love. So, and what was at the bottom of hell? Fraud. The worst sins were examples of fraud. People using the intellect for ends it was never intended to be used for. To hurt people, to deceive, to lie, to hide. To twist reality, to make reality something it's not. To, to misread. What does Iago do? I mean, there's nothing that he does that doesn't show the cunning of the mind to work on people. To, to, change, to, take, to take everything that's in front of him and change it and make it something that it's not. Remember that line I read last week? How did he describe himself? 
What's his identity? What's the opening? Where was that line? Act one, line, Act one, scene one, line 65. In compliment extern, tis not long after, but I will wear my heart upon my sleeve for, for Dawes to Pekka. I'm not going to show the effect as if, as if he had any affections. He has no, he has no heart. If he, if he expressed his feelings the way they're actually world, then somebody would come along like, like um, vultures and peck at them. But I will wear my heart upon my sleeve for Dawes to Pekka. I'm not going to do that. I am not what I am. We read that, didn't I? Mm -hmm. you, you, you see how opposite that is to Yahweh? Do we talk about this? Yeah. I get yes. lost sometimes yes. in the class, sorry. That he is not what he is. He's, he's the opposite of God. The identity of God, I am that am. God is being. So Iago is anti-being. There is nothing that he will do that won't involve, first of all, the, the use of his intellect, and if it's opposed to God, it will do everything it can to destroy love. And that's exactly what he does. Now remember the question that I left you all with, which to me is a really burning question. What is it about Venice, the Venetian, we've been looking at it, what is it about the Venetian world that makes it so inimical to love? I'm saying this really seriously. We don't find another regime that does this. It encourages people to use their heads, but it's destructive of love. We saw glimpses of that in Merchant of Venice, right, because traditional values are going everywhere. So that's a serious question we've got to come back to. Um, okay. Um, what I would like to look at in, in um, Othello tonight, I'd like to look at this <laughs> this power of poetry that I've been claiming over and over again because it's it, it's particularly important here. Then I would like to look at Iago's manipulating what he does with all of the characters, and then I'm going to end with this 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 major question that I'd like to leave everybody with. Truly. I've struggled with this for ages. I think I have a glimpse into it, but I really want you guys to struggle with it. I'd like to hear what you make of it. Yes, yes. Carry that cross. Yes, yeah, good, yes. Um, be glad I'm not giving you quizzes and tests and papers. Um, this is serious for me. This is really serious because I take, I, I think you know how serious I am. I believe this stuff that Venice is, <laughs> the whole democratic world that we live in romanticizes America. There's something great about America. There, there's no question. I'm, I'm grateful that I'm here, even, even with all the political, the guy that we turn our car into that when we, I met him, went to see him with our daughter who took her car in to have him fix it. And, and he was talking about his pleasure in the election and we were talking about, um, Things and he told me he, a couple of years ago when one of these pieces of legislation, I don't want to go into this tonight, but he, took, he went outside and took his flag and took it off of his house and said he wasn't going to, I scolded him and said, I don't, you should never have done that. As bad as America gets, the answer to our problems can't be that. So 
Anyway, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the gifts that we have as Americans. I'm also aware, I, I think you can tell, that I believe that we're the most dangerous regime on the world. So put that, put that, hold on to that paradox. Here's my question to you guys. I've, I've said this before, nobody in all of Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Dante, as far as I'm concerned, have the greatest understanding of our human nature of any poets who have ever written. And, and, and I would surround them with a host, Homer, Virgil, Dostoevsky, Faulkner, um, among others, um, have, have helped us to see our human nature more deeply than anybody else. Um, Shakespeare, in all of his canon, if you look at all of his plays, the two most evil men are Richard III, and, and who's the king of England, and Iago. Iago's in a democracy. We think the greatest threat to us came from kingship, from despotism. So we're frightened of tyrants, yeah? I mean, really, in our national character, we get worked up when we see tyrants. Our revolution was fought on that basis. We broke from a tyrant so we could have our freedoms. That's in our constitutional character, that's who we are. What Shakespeare's showing us is that Iago is far more evil and his, the effects of, of his evil are far more broadly devastating than anything a king did. Now my question to you all is why? What, what is he showing us about our regime? What's the connection? There's something inherent in us that is capable of a greater evil than evil, any evil practiced by a tyrant king. And let me narrow it some. This play turns on signs. On signs. If you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. In the, in the fourth act, Iago begins to insinuate Desdemona's infidelity. And he works Othello into a pitch of frenzy. And finally, Othello gets so upset that he almost, he threatens Iago. And he says, prove it to me or shut up. I mean, he, he, this is his wife. He, he loves her. I've done everything I could to show. I think, what a, I think what a great man Othello is. He threatens this man with his life. And Iago puts on this play. It's play. He puts on a play. And in this play, he presents this hanky in such a way that Othello is convinced that it's evidence of his wife's betrayal. Now, it's a sign. Now, hold on to this. Just hold on to this. Remember, we said last week that the rationalistic regime defines itself in terms of reason. When Brabazio says, what, what, what makes you talk like this? This isn't a Grange. It's Venice. These sorts of things don't happen in Venice. This is a, a rationalistic regime. We control everything. Anything that didn't fit in that regime was irrational. And the irrational for uh, Brabantio, or, yeah, was um, charms, superstitions, magic. Yeah? And none of that was true. Othello told his stories. Desdemona fell in love with him. He fell in love with her. And there was no charm or magic. So in the beginning, we've got this situation that, that Shakespeare set up. You've got the rationalistic regime, everything under control, monitors of the Turks, foreign affairs, modern politics, um, and everything's okay at home. You get to the island, Othello puts on a guard for the, for the, um, the Moors who are no longer a threat, 
but he doesn't put on a guard for what's inside. And what happens inside is inimical, it's, it's evil. So you've got the rationalistic regime assuming that it can control everything, and it looks at everything outside of that rational control as strange, threatening, superstitious magic charms. When, when Iago presents the, the scene, the little play, with a hanky, there's only one thing to say about it. Remember, the hanky was given to Othello as a magic charm from a woman, and it begins to acquire magical properties, in a sense, in the power that it has over him. You all following? I mean, the powers are way out of proportion to anything real. In that sense, they're magical. Yeah? So my question is, this whole thing turns on signs. 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 Oh, Doc. Sunday. It was. Uh, it was what? Thursday. Wednesday. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you guys. It was Wednesday, right? The ninth. Wasn't this last Wednesday? It was. Oh yeah, here. This is from Mass. This is from Mass. This last Wednesday. From John. Since the Passover of the Jews was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple area those who, who sold auction sheep, doves, money changers. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and oxen. This is our Lord, furious these people, really angry. Christ didn't commit any sins. Anger is not a sin here. Um, take these things out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. He's consumed for love of his father. That's his father. This is an act of blasphemy to him. This is the temple. This is the home where he and the Father and the Spirit, in some sense, reside. Um, at this, the Jews answered and said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered and said, Destroy the temple. They have no clue what he's talking about. Yeah. Now just stop and think about this. The, the, the reading a couple of days later was the Pharisees come to him and say, When is the kingdom of heaven coming? And he, tell us where to, and Christ says, you can't see it's coming. If somebody tells you it's there, that is a sign. If somebody tells you there, it's a sign. It's not going to be there. And why? Because he's there. He, he talks to the people about signs, looking for signs constantly. He chided the disciples. Remember after the multiplication of the loaves, he got angry at them. When they said, when the disciples said, God just performed this miracle. The kingdom's there. He did it. They're astounded by it. And still saying, show us a sign. Remember he talks about the sign of Joan. He gets irritated because he's there. Now my question is, this is, this, is not a, this is not an unusual thing. People want signs all the time. Why? 
And what is Christ teaching us about signs and why does the tragedy of this work come down to the reading of a sign and investing it with properties it doesn't have? What is it about the commercial regime that invests signs with meanings they don't have that cause people to misread all the time? I don't want to answer that tonight, but I want to take this up next week. What is it about our regime that does this? That's what Shakespeare's showing us. Okay? I hope that's suffering enough. <laughs> Did I put that out darkly enough? I hope so. Did I? That's clear, yeah? That how, how much of a problem that was for Christ? Again and again and again, he keeps coming back to it. People don't read. They miss the kingdoms in front of them. Even after the multiplication of the loaves, they still didn't see. And even at the end, you know, at the very end, Thomas is going, not until I, you know. So what is it about us as humans that, that explains this propensity for signs? This, it's almost an obsessive need, some deep need that we have. So, okay, so that's what I want to, next week, I'd like to think about that. Um, tonight, what I'd like to do is go over... Um, the readings, this whole question about reading poetry, and then I'd like to look at what Iago does with his manipulations, how he manipulates people, what Shakespeare's showing us about <laughs> what all of us are inclined to do in this competitive regime in which we are rivals to each other, what it does to us. How's that for another burden? Okay, um, poetry. Turn back to Merchant of Venice just for a second. I asked this last week, but I want to go back to it because I really, I really, in Portia's speech, her, her um, Act Four, Scene One. Act 4, scene 1, about line 180. Remember, she, she, she says um, that Shylock wants justice, that that's what they're going to get. And Shylock, is, you can see him wringing his hands in relish, that he's looking forward to seeing this flesh cut up. And then when she turns the table um, on Shylock, you can watch Graziano doing the same thing. It's just sad situation. But here at this point, um, um, Portia says to Shylock, then must the Jew be merciful because the cost of not being merciful, is, I mean, think about this, it was a loan. And what he wants as payment for that loan is the life of a person. That's how deadly the law can become, how self-righteous we can become in enforcing what, what we stand to lose, that we don't want to lose. So she says, then the Jew must be merciful. Shylock, on what compulsion must I tell me that, Portia? These are her words now. Okay. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. 
His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein does sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above the sceptered sway. Remember, this is a Christian view now, right? Because Christ came into the world when we didn't deserve it. So what, what she's appealing to is a, a love not based on justice, but going beyond in order to bring about a better justice. Okay? That won't be possible without this love. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. And earthly power doth then show like as God when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which if thou follow, this strict court of Venice must needs give sentence against the merchant there. He will be killed. Now, just hold on to those lines, because that is almost strict iambic pentameter. That's poetry, okay? Whether we heard it or not, those were poetic lines, proportions. At the very end of the play, remember when they're calling to task their husbands now? I mean, they're, <laughs> they're raking them over the coals. Um, Graziano and Nerissa were quarreling, and Portia goes over and says, what's going on? And then Graziano says, I gave the ring, and now she's mad at me. And, and then she tells him I, those lines I just read, um, that what he did was at fault, and Basiano Bassi <laughs> knows that he's going to get it now. Turn there to one line when a Bassiano aside, why we're best to cut my left hand off and swear I lost the ring defendant because he knows he's going to get it right now. Graziano, my lord Bassiano gave his rings away too. <laughs> How's that for a friend? He did it too. <laughs> Shakespeare's making us look at Graziano. This is some Christian. I mean, that's what else is there to say about him? Portia, what ring gave you, my lord? Not that, I hope, which you received of me. If I could add a lie unto a fault, I would deny it. But you see my finger hath not the ring upon it. It's gone. Um, Portia, even void is your false heart of truth. By heaven, I will, I will never come into your bed until I see this ring. I love her courage there. We're not going to sleep together. Because she makes the case that you gave it to these women. I mean, they're doing everything they can to, to make these men squirm. Um... Nerissa, nor I in yours till I again see mine. Now look at this. This is what I want you to hear. Bassiano, sweet Portia, if you did know to whom I gave the ring, if you did know for whom I gave the ring, and would conceive for what I gave the ring, and how unwillingly I left the ring, what not would be accepted but the ring, you would, ab you would abate the strength of your displeasure. <clears throat> Portia, if you had known the virtue of the ring, or half the worthiness that gave the ring, or your own heart to contain the ring, you would not have parted with the ring. What man is there so much unreasonable if you had pleased to have defended it with any terms of zeal, wanted the modesty to urge the thing hold, held as a ceremony? Nerissa teaches me what it is to believe. I'll die for it, but some woman had that ring. <laughs> She's accusing me of giving. Now, this is strict poetry. Every line ends with ring. What is Shakespeare doing? What's he doing? It's a sign. Hmm? It's a sign. Of? The, the ring is the, one of the signs. 
Yeah. It's poetry. The people don't speak like this. Yeah. Let me go to go, let's turn to Othello and see if I can put some of this together to make turn to Othello just for a second. Act one, line two. I'm sorry, act one scene act one, scene two, line thirty-one. Iago and Othello have met, they're walking, and they see Brabantio and the other men coming towards them, and, and, and Iago says, get out of the way, line 31. Othello, no, not I, I must be found, my parts, my title, and my perfect soul shall manifest me rightly. He doesn't run. He has nothing to be afraid of. Yeah? Act 1, scene 2, line 60. The two groups meet, and the, the men on the opposite groups start to pull out their swords. I've done this last week, I just want to go through it again. They start to pull out their swords, and Othello speaks these words. This is about line 50. Keep up your bright swords, for the dew will rust them. Good Signor, you show more command with your years than your weapons. With such respect for age. Your age will carry more authority with me than your weapons. Do you all have it? Line 50 or 60? 60. But that line, keep up your bright swords for the dew will rust them. 75? Yeah. Do you all have them? Yeah. Now? Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Um, what commander speak, speaks words like that? Do you all hear that? I mean, that's strict poetry. What he's saying is, don't pull out your swords because the dew will rust them because you won't use them. You won't need them. He's a commander. One thing, as a man, I mean, I think men are given to this, particularly military men, he's very efficient. He doesn't want any waste. He's telling, he's showing his authority as a commander. Put your swords up. The dew will rust them. You're not going to use them. He is in full control of this scene. Brabantio threatens him, line 86, or line 86 or so, to prison till fit time come of law. Othello, what if I do obey? How may the duke be, be there with satisfied upon messengers are here about my side, upon some present business of the state to bring? What if I obey? I mean, what can I do to satisfy you? He's saying, he's not posing a threat. He's not defensive. He's saying, I'll go along with you. What can I do to make it easier for you? Line 81 in Act 1, Scene 3. This is when he's dealing with the Duke and is going to have to defend himself. And he says, Line 81, rude am I in my speech. He is a warrior. He spent his life fighting tribes. Right? He's not used to thinking. Venice is a place in which people are encouraged to be cunning, to use their ingenuity. And he says, Rudemine speech. So he tells this story of all of his adventures, you know, when, when Desdemona and Brabantio listened to him and were taken up by the stories. What line is it? You guys all have it? No. It's like I don't know where you are. 96? Thanks. Line 96? Is this Act 1? Act 1, Scene 3. Do you all have it? Yeah, 96 words. Rude, rude Remember, he's uneducated. He's a warrior. He's not used to 
bean in his head. And now he's going to tell this story. Uh, this is about line 100 in my 130. How far ahead am I or behind Bob? You're, be, you're behind. Behind? Uh, you're, 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 I mean, you re, you, when you were reading 81 or whatever, we were at 95. So, that's so look 14, at 10, to 14, say, say 14, line, 14 yeah. lines ahead. In my text, it's about line 130. This is where he talks, he describes the stories that he told of his adventures. You all, her father loved me, often invited me still. You remember that? He describes all these strange creatures and Desdemona loved them all. Um, Act two, scene one. They've arrived at um, Cyprus and they've been waiting expectantly for Othello. Desdemona's there already. There's this exchange between her and Iago that's really important. But at this moment, Othello arrives. This is about line 180. Othello says, Oh, my fair warrior, Desdemona, my dear Othello, it gives me wonder, great is my content. What line is that? It's around 200. Line 200? Yeah. My dear Othello, it get, just, I just want you to hear these lines. What line is it? It's close to 200. It's on our page. Like 200. Line 200. Page 73. Page 73. Othello says, It gives me wonder, great is my content to see you here before me. Oh, my soul's joy. If every tempest come such calms, if after every tempest come such calms, may the winds blow till they have wakened death, and let the laboring bark climb hills of seas, Olympus high, and duck again as low as hells from heaven. If it were now to die, twere now to be most happy, for I fear my soul hath her content so absolute that not another comfort like to this succeeds in unknown fate. She says, the heavens forbid, forbid that our loves and comforts should increase even as our days do grow. Amen to that, sweet powers. I cannot speak enough of this content. It stops me here. It is too much of joy. And this and this the greatest discords be. And they kiss. Turn to Act 3, Scene 3. About line 90. Desdemona has just made an appeal on Cassio's behalf. You remember that Cassio's in trouble. He, Othello basically demotes him, and, and Iago has set up Cassio and Desdemona. Desdemona has spoken for Cassio, and, Des, and Othello says, I will give you what you want. Um, this is about line 75. He says, Pretty, no more. Let him come when he will. I will deny thee nothing. Same, same. Act, same scene, Act 3, scene 3. And then, well, in my line, it's 90 now. He says, excellent wretch, perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee, and when I love thee not, chaos is come again. Okay? Now turn to the very end when he's about to kill Desdemona. Act 5, scene 2. Did I read this? No. Okay, good. He's at her bedside. You have, everybody has to picture this. This is act, It's right at the beginning, Act 5, Scene 2. He's at her bedside. There's a candle. Can I have your attention? He, there's a candle. It's lit. He looks at the candle and says, if I put you out, I can relight you. 
and he keeps that metaphor there. Okay, so just hold on to that because it can be confusing, but it's not. It's really, it's really clear if you just hold that. He's sitting on the bed. This is the woman he loves. This is this man who has not been defensive, who is calm, in control, commanding, efficient, courageous. He has all these virtues. And if we miss that, it seems to me we miss how great the tragedy is. Take anything that away. And we miss the depth of what the depth of evil at work here. That's what we lose. He sits on the bed of the woman he's just spoken these lines to. Oh, my soul's joy. He's gone on and on. It gives me wonder. Great is my content to see you here before me. Oh, my soul's joy. And he goes on. Okay. This is amazing. And by the way, remember, don't forget this. I am poor of speech. He cannot speak. Shakespeare knows that. This is an illiterate man in Venetian terms. He's, he's not a product of education. He doesn't have what we have. And he says, I'm poor of speech. And I believe we're meant to think he, he is. Now he sits at the bedside of the woman he loves, and this is what he says, after Iago has worked him to this pitch. And notice the word cause, because that's a courtroom. I have a cause. I mean, we've all been in that situation where we've faced injustice and we want a lawyer to pick up our cause to defend us. So the language is very much that of a, of a courtroom. Th this is, above all for him, an issue of justice. And the, inju the, the outrage, the injustice that she's done him by being disloyal, at least in his mind. It is the cause, it is the cause, my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chase stars. It is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, else she'll betray more men. Put out the light, and then put out the light. If I quench thee, thy flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent me. If I put out this candle, I can light it up if I regret it and start it again. Yeah? If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore. God, is there poetry like this in any shape? I'm not aware of it. Um, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent me. But once put out thy light, thou cunningest pattern of excelling nature, I know not where is that Promethean heat that can thy light relume. When I have plucked the rose, I cannot give it vital growth again. It needs must wither. I'll smell thee on the tree. He kisses her. O balmy breath, does this almost persuade justice to break her sword? His heart is breaking. I mean, he, the whole question of justice is almost wants to undo it and can't. One more, one more. Be thus when thou art dead, and I will kill thee and love thee after. One more, and that's the last. So sweet was ne'er so fatal. I must weep. But they are cruel tears, the sorrows heavily. It strikes where it doth love, she wakes. Um, and love thee after one more. He, he, he does want to kill her without allowing her confession. So she wakes and he, he wants to give her a chance and she has no idea what he's talking about. He loves her that much that he wants her to confess. He doesn't want to kill her until... So think about how tormented this is, how divided he is in his soul. Now, I don't want to focus on this because this is where we're going to come next week when we end it. But I want to ask this question. How do we read poetry? At the end of Merchant, well, in the courtroom scene, you had Portia 
deliver this extraordinary speech. At the end, she and Bassiano are going at it with these lines in which every line ends with ring. And then you've got Othello saying he's rude of speech, and yet he speaks some of the greatest lines in all of Shakespeare. There, there are only a few, there's only a couple um, romance tragedies. Anthony and Cleopatra. Anthony and Cleopatra. Romeo and Juliet, yeah, and that's really an adolescent, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, yeah, Romeo and Juliet. All the others, Coriolanus, Macbeth, Hamlet, Julius Caesar, you know, they're all about men. Those, the ones that I named are the only ones about um, relate, love relationships. And Anthony and Cleopatra are great lovers, and what, I mean, that, to me it's one of the most extraordinary of Shakespeare's plays. This is the one that most identifies, most locates us in our world. It's a husband and wife. Um, he speaks lines, no other man speaks to a woman in all of Shakespeare. And we've seen him move from this extraordinary competent man to what he's become after Iago works on him. So I want, I want to ask this question, he's rude of speech. What's going on? I, I mentioned this on Friday to the, to the morning class. I've mentioned this Russian formalist critic before. His name's Bakhtin, Mikhail Bakhtin, who's done so much work on the modern novel. And Bakhtin takes this position. He says that the only really genuine genre form is the novel because all of the other forms, traditional forms, the, the lyric, <coughs> tragedy, and epic, are all in verse. Remember, you know the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Divine Comedy, are all in verse. And his argument is the poets have to accommodate a verse form so they can't get close to our actual spoken words. Only the novel does that. So the novel's more empirical. You all follow that, right? That's pretty simple, yeah? So either Shakespeare's an inferior poet here because he's writing all this stuff in verse or something else is going on. And I, you know how important poetry is to me, so I'm asking this question. What is he doing with poetry here? Is he just Marcy's word? Is he just um, embellishing? Is this a poet which justifies all the people saying, these poets, all they do is embellish with this language? Is he just embellishing? Or is he teaching us to read a different way? What's he doing? Rings, 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 rings. Who write? Who talks like that? And who talks like this when he's rude of speech? What is Shakespeare doing with poetry? I believe he's teaching us how to read a different way. And you, know how, you know how important reading is to me and my, my beliefs. What's he doing? Any thoughts? He's evoking emotion. For sure. What is it, what's the emotion? Can you describe it? it pick a scene, whichever. Oops. Whichever one that moved you. Well, just this one. He feels so deep with her. Yeah. And I kind of struggle with that because if he felt so deeply, why would he want to end that? Well, of course, he's asking her, you know, admit this, admit this, because maybe then he could forgive her if she admits it. We can justify it. I don't know that he would forgive her if she... But anyway, yeah. But the emotion is really deep for sure. Powerful. Mm -hmm. So deep. Yeah. 
Well, in some ways, that's a measure of the agony in him that he loves her so much for her to betray him. And think about it just for a minute in his mind. That's, that's what Iago has done to him. He believes that the woman that he has loved so much, and, and remember, he's converted to Christianity somewhere in here. He's, he's a recent convert. So that love for him is a new emotion, and he's felt this for this woman, and suddenly, remember, he's used to fighting enemies. Constantly fighting enemies. He's coming out of a so world of justice. She's his enemy. Huh? So now she's his exactly. enemy. Exactly. He's used to fighting enemies, and his answer to enemies is yeah, do away with them. <laughs> and now this and now this woman has awakened this extraordinary love in him, and um, here. This uses you instead of ring. I'm serious. Don't don't even smile. Because this what? woman was Bobby. Say it, Marcy. Just say it. <clears throat> Bobby Fendrich, one of our members, is in the nursing home and dying. And Bob and I took her a crown. And I wrote this to go with the crown. And when you said ring, I thought it's the same as this. Yeah. It's short. Go ahead. The crown. It was the one for you. I saw it and knew it was you. A beautiful crown like you. So full of brilliant jewels, shining like you. Precious to us and God too are you. Looking at this crown, know we are there with you. Keep it near and let it glow for you. Others will see it. Tell them it was given to you from all of us who love you. How lovely, Marcy. Can you relate that to the story now? What's? Let me put it differently. There's poetic lines in there. Why did you write it in poetry instead of just prose? I couldn't say what I wanted to say in prose. I had to do it this way. Because. Why? Because it was pure emotion. <gasps> but it's... And I could express it this way, but I couldn't in regular words. Yeah. It meant more that way than yeah. just in regular mm -hmm. words. And I, I think a lot of times when I write things out, I get bogged up in putting enough into it, so it becomes complicated. And sometimes it, and like the old English authors like Jane Austen and all those people, they just blow my mind because there's so many words, and I get lost in it. So the simplicity of it makes the emotion stand out more. But would you would you describe? Yaga or Othello's words at the end in terms of any kind of simplicity. I mean, God, the elegance and the formality of them are extraordinary. And even the difficult, if I quench thee, thy flaming minister. He's talking about a candle. If I, if I quench thee, thou flaming minister. And yet what a perfect word for a candle under the circumstances because it brings in a whole sacred dimension of a candle. In, the, in light of what he's going to do, you know, should I repent me? Who's, who uses repent for saying, I regret putting out a candle? Everything about this diction is elevated, formal, but it's also rhythmic and poetic. It is, it, it, it's like what Marcy's done in her lines. There's a formality and a beauty to the lines that I don't think anybody could capture just in prose. I mean, it takes away from it. Here, let me offer... Rhythm is not a thing. Yeah. Here's, here's why. That's, oh, is that for the crown? That's, that's what the her. Crown. That's her. That's her with the crown. She died three days later. Yeah. 
Yeah, what a lovely poem. That makes it even... <laughs> yeah, no, I guess yeah. the significance of, you know, of that relative to, to us. There she is wearing yeah. the crown. Yeah. Oh, nice. So she was just, she was just delighted. We were teasing her about, we had taken her a blanket because they didn't provide a, a blanket and it was purple. And we said, well, the only thing that's missing is a, is a crown to go with the purple. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we Marcy it. went out and, and got online and, and found a place that sold crowns. <laughs> you guys are special. Um, what's going on? Come on, what's, what's he doing? What's he, is he just embellishing so deserving of the criticism the poets have that they just embellish things? I don't think so. I, here's, here's what I think he's doing. I believe Othello's root of speech, okay? If somebody in a novel created the character Othello and used prose that matched his language, that perfectly expressed empirically what he would say, illiterate, uneducated, what, what was the line, I am poor of speech, you know? Would he ever be able to capture the depths of those things in Othello's soul that he himself could never express in words? No, absolutely not. In, in Friday's class, I was giving an example. <laughs> this is the comic side of it, or maybe, maybe the tragic. But when Suzanne and I first met, we used to meet in the library. This is at Berkeley in our junior year when we first met, and we would meet at the library, and there were uh, library cards that you'd use to fill out request forms. And sometimes, this is in the very beginning, or, well, let, let me go back to a background here. One of Shakespeare's plays, Love Labors Law, all of, by the way, we, I've said this, all the comedies are romances, all of them are romances, not the tragedies. And the women are central figures. They're amazing figures. Um, in Love's Labors Lost, I can't, hell, I can't remember. I can't remember, boy, my mind is going to, I can't remember the heroine's name, but the man who loves her is a man named um, or Orlando. And everywhere you can, and they, the women have to flee the city again because the city's oppressive and they have to go in. And she has to put on immense clothing to disguise herself. And everywhere in the forest where she goes are, oh, Ros Rosalind, are these poems to Rosalind written in the trees. And everybody's laughing, whoever this, fool is who's writing all of this silly sentimental poetry. And I can remember when the two of us were younger and we would meet in the library and I would write these things to, to Doc, to Suzanne. I look back at them now and I'm a little bit, I mean, we're, I mean, the things that, but I remember distinctly feeling then and later that there was no way I could have found words to express what I felt for her. You know, the, the cards, cards can't do it. I've never, I've never bought cards in my life, but I think the point here is this. Remember, this is so serious. <clears throat> if the cave imagery were taken seriously, right? We're in a world of appearances. If Shakespeare is going to get us out of that world, he can't do us unless he makes that world really clear to us that these are the appearances of things. If we're in Venice, he's got to render Venice the way it is, yeah? But he's also got to do it in a way that gets us out. Now, if Othello's words were rendered in prose, would we ever hear what's at the center of that man's soul that he, he himself could never express? It's, it's taught me to, to take a look at gang members. 
Just, I mean, you find your own, find your example. Sometimes we look at people whose appearances are so awful that our first response is condemning. You know, I think most of us have to, I mean, certainly for myself, I have to take a step back to say, what does God see in that person that I don't? God loves the good and the bad. How many of us are taken up by appearances? Stuck in the cave when the love we're called to is crucifying. We're supposed to die. Shakespeare's teaching us to do that. When Othello speaks these words, Shakespeare is showing us the nobility in this person that's much deeper than his poor speech. And I believe, looking at those quarreling lines between the lovers and you know at the end of Merchant, first of all, in the in the courtroom scene, Portia's speaking poetry. She's show, he's showing us. She is in harmony with justice. There's an order and a measure and a beauty to her words because they're reflections of her soul. The same way with Othello. Yeah? So if we read this literally, like critics, then we're going to just say embellishment. It's just poetic, and we're missing something. We're just being too literal. And at the end, here's the interesting thing. At the end, when Bassanio's, <laughs> when Bassanio is going, ring, 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 ring. It's like a phone going off. Um, when he says, Bassanio, sweet Portia, sweet Portia. <laughs> He's trying to do everything he can to save himself here. Sweet Portia. If you did know to whom I gave the ring, if you did know for whom I gave the ring, it goes on ring, ring, ring. If you were fighting with somebody, let's, I trust, I mean, I hope all of you, I, I know some of the fights that we've had. If we were fighting over something, wouldn't that word keep coming up in our fight? You shouldn't have done this, and you go, it come to five minutes, this, you know, we'll go back to that, whatever the issue is, that word will come up again and again and again and again. Will it ever come up in poetry? Absolutely not, because we're too furious or whatever we're doing that we should, should be doing in a better way. I think what he's doing is showing us an argument in poetry. That he's, that he's teaching us to see that the issue here is the ring and that there's something of a quarrel, but the lovers are handling it in a better way, in a way we don't usually handle it when we quarrel. Are you following? So like Othello in his words, and Shakespeare giving him some of the most extraordinary lines in all of If we take that literally, we'll come away like the literal-minded readers who, who read just literally and not see there's a beauty in this man's soul that can't be expressed with any other words. That's what poetry's doing. It's helping us to see a movement out of the cave. When the lovers are going and, 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 and notice, how, notice how Portia matches him. He's being clever. I mean, probably thinking it's going to get him off. I can see her, you know, I mean, like you following me, like he can buy himself up because he's being poetic, except she's answering him. If you had known the virtue of the ring or had her witness to gave the ring or your own honor to continue, on and on and on, she's answering it. But, it, but, the, but the sentiment behind the lovers is charity, justice, teaching, you know, there's a, there's a stern warning in them, but it's in poetry. So I think Shakespeare's doing 
I mean, we've been talking all along about what poetry does, and it does different things for different writers. Homer's doing something very different, and so is Virgil, and Shakespeare's doing something very, very different here. They're teaching us to, to learn to see difficulties as they really are. This is Venice, and I hope I've been clear how, how potentially evil it can be, but he's also showing us the sentiments that are important to come out of it and how important poetry is for helping us to do that. Could I say that ring has a more harsh sound? Ring, ring. That's a lot, but you... Particularly if you repeat it. Yes, yeah. but you, like in this, is a soft sound. And that matters too. Which word do you choose to have a harsh sound or a smooth, soft mm -hmm. sound? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he's got to use ring here regardless because it's ring, what's, in, it's it's what's at issue. It, yeah. But it right. also helps that it's a harsh word. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, but, I, but I think it's also softened by the spirit that... It's softer when she says it. <laughs> yeah, but she's got... There's a, there's a moral purpose to her that she's got the Bassanios sort of running from, I think, here. Um, here, last thing before we leave, I just want to quickly, how does, how does Othello manipulate all the characters? Just very quickly, because I want to stop here. Sorry, what did I say? <laughs> she usually is on me, she's, thank God. What he does is, um, I said he's a psychologist without portfolio, which means he didn't go to school, he doesn't have a degree, but he identifies their inner desires and uses those, manipulates them yep, yep. by using their inner desires. Yeah. Let's just identify them. Um, with Rodrigo, he's using his, Rodrigo's desire for Desdemona. To, and to make money. So he will play on that. And it's interesting that in Act 2 and 3, he changes when they get... And by the way, this is really important. Remember that um, that Cyprus, we talked about this. Remember, this is Venice. This is the Venetian world. Belmont is the... Or you can put it up here if you want. Belmont is the beautiful city, the philosophic city. It's, it's where she learned... I, I think most importantly philosophy, that she brings a philosophic poetic grasp of things, but her, her, her grasp of philosophy is really solid. She, she couldn't have helped in those legal decisions in court without a real understanding of the law and a, and a philosophic understanding of principles. She knows the ends of the law in a way that Shylock and the men in the court don't. Cyprus is the underworld, what moderns would call it the, the dark unconscious. It's where the, the primordial things go on. When they're at, at um, Cyprus, Shylock shifts his motives with Rodrigo, and he has to. Remember, he, his appeal to Rodrigo at one point is to say she loves Cassio because she's, her, her interest in Othello have waned, and she's out for her lust. And Rodrigo is immediately shocked. He doesn't want to believe that. But the whole, the whole tenor of it is, and the whole tenor of, of Iago, it seems to me one of the words that we have to use for him, is he's cynical. 
he takes everything good and puts it in a bad light. So he puts Desdemona as if she's um, a strumpet, whorish. And Rodrigo is first offended, but Iago's response to him, it'll get you to your desires more quickly if you just get Cassio out of the way. So he begins to manipulate Rodrigo that way. When he, in the scene when they set the guard that night, he gets Cassio to drink by appealing to his sense of camaraderie with the other men, because if Cassio doesn't drink, he'll feel himself outside, like he's not a man. And he's made it clear, if he drinks, he doesn't drink well, he'll be in trouble. So he knows how to appeal to him. Montano, who's the governor, he says to Montano, after he gets Cassio a drink and Cassio leaves, he says, it, it's too bad that Othello chose this man because he has this weakness. Now, he doesn't come out and say the worst things, but it's insinuated now, so that when Rodrigo and Cassio come back, and there's that tussle, and, um, and Montana gets wounded, it's easy to fault Cassio then, because the dark way of seeing him has already been implanted. He gets his wife, Amelia, to get the handkerchief, gets her to support, to encourage her to get Cassio to go, because it's a sympathy of women to feel sorry for somebody who's in trouble. And Cassio does the same thing with Desdemona. So he uses everybody's desires, but he's really, he's really, and it's not just desires, it's women's affections, their sympathies. So whatever he does, and, and this is, I really wanna, sorry, because this is gonna may seem a little bit brutal. How much of us, all of us, in the commercial regime, because we see each other as rivals, we're competitive with each other for our jobs, how much of any of this goes on very subtly in the way that we look at other people, the tendency to put things in a worse light, to make things more negative. Remember, one of the, one of the qualities that defines Iago, in the opening of the play, he says he hates Othello out of envy, and he hates Cassio out of envy because he lost that job. In the next act, he says, I hate him because there's a suspicion that he's bedded with my wife. And the thought that as a rival he would bed with his wife undoes him. So we watch reason making up things, twisting the world to make it fit rationally. How many people in the commercial regime instinctively use their minds to justify what they do? To put things in a worse light. And, and how subtle they can be. It can be in our family, it can be in a business, particularly in a business, but everywhere. These little things that we, that we concoct with our reason to make things the way we want them. So what Shakespeare's doing is opening up the very nature of this Venetian world. And what he's showing it is no matter how innocent it looks to us, when we do it, at the core of it is this anti-Yahweh anti-God principle. This thing that is contrary to love. Okay. So here's where we are. How will it end? Well, you know, but finish it. And next week, we will just, I'll spend the first half of our class finishing Othello, and we'll start um, Hamlet. But let me stop. Any questions? Do you guys have any questions? Is all of this making sense, I hope? Mm -hmm. Opening up yep. this 
view of the Venetian world. Do you have you do, do you have one of these books? I that we ran out. Marcy and I asked um, Jared to get some new ones so I could have one and follow your. But I I'm well, um, Diego. He's, he's identified completely to me on this page and in that. What act and scene? That is act one, scene three. Act one, scene three? Yes. And where are you, what, what's going on? Just describe it. Don't well, Rodrigo um, is talking about uh, he loves the woman so much that he can't help it. He can't change it. Mm -hmm. And Diego says, it's merely a lust of the blood and a permission of the will. Right. So what he actually says is, it's only lust. Love is only lust. That tells me that the ego can love nothing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that, that yeah. is the ego throughout that book. I'll go even farther, Mar Marcy. He, and he doesn't say just lust, he says it's a motion of the will. That he doesn't even lust. I don't, on and off. Yeah, well, I don't, see, I don't even think he has a passion. He, lust, lust would make him more human. But I can't even see lust. I don't, he's a non-erotic. He lives totally in his head. Yes, and he can't love anybody. Mm -hmm. That's not yep. in him. Yeah, no, so I agree. with that identifying the ego, that tells me all about him in this book, because mm -hmm. that's where he comes from. Yeah, but, but my question, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad you're putting it that way. It, it, I, I don't, by the way, I would say that one of the things that characterizes the modern world is how it's producing more and more what we can, I don't know what it's called, unerotic man. That man is becoming more and more like a machine, yes. efficient, and less capable of feeling. If Iago felt some lust, I would say there's something human in it, but there's no sign of even a lust in this man's soul. But my question, I want to go back to this question. What produces him in Venice? What is it about Venice that produced this figure? What's the connection? Let me leave it there. Next week, we finish this up. Next week is Thanksgiving week, yeah? Yep. This is pretty dark stuff, no? Yes, it is. You gotta be glad, no? Wait, what, wait, let me put it this way. One of the amazing things about this Venetian world for me is how innocent these Christians are. I mean, what, what, come out of this world now. If, if you put down Shakespeare and say, what a bloody play, are we supposed to learn something from this? If it is, what? I mean, what is he, if this is a cave, what is he showing about this world? I mean, one of the things you can say about all the characters in here, they are so manipulated by evil without knowing. Do we just leave it there? I would hope we would be more aware of things around us, hopefully in a way that would deepen our loves. Otherwise, why do it? God. Well, it helps to understand the Italian mind. <laughs> no, I have reason. Reason I I, I I keep thinking back to I met a visit of one of my wife's relatives up in the up in the. They're from Florence, and they had a place up in the Alps in in Montevecchio, and it's uh, way up at the, way up at the top of the mountain. And he has a an 800 year old residence that that 
with a huge fireplace and the like, and just as you, know, you told can, us this year. As you can imagine. And one time we went there, and he's got a he's got a bust of Caesar on his on his on his mantle, and I said to him, "That looks like what I've seen at the museum in Florence." He said, "Yes, I got it when the flood came." <laughs> and he took it. He took and he, it out of the museum. He took so, it out of the museum. He's very proud to have it, but he told me, he explained, I saved it. He says, otherwise, <laughs> it would have gone underwater and no one would have found it. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> you know, sounds to me like Detroit and Baltimore. And, <laughs> and I always thought, you know, what a, what a wonderful thought. <laughs> But he wasn't going to take it back because it looked so good up on his mantle. <laughs> no, that because he was because he was so good in saving it. Yeah, well, he, he felt it was reward. I mean, he was saving. <laughs> By the way, if, if 